Welcome back to the Cloth Cultures podcast for the British Textile Biennial with me, Amber Butchart. Throughout this series and an accompanying exhibition at the Howarth Art Gallery, I am exploring movement, migration and making through cloth, using pieces found in the Gawthorpe Textile Collection to tell the stories behind what we wear. Focusing on four fabrics, silk, linen, wool and cotton, I'm investigating the global strands of local stories that link Lancashire, at the heart of the textile industry in Britain, to areas throughout Europe, Asia, Africa and the Americas. This episode, I'm thinking about linen workwear, specifically the smock, which began as workwear for men, but evolved into a fashionable garment for women. The transition from function to fashion is played out in two thick linen smocks in the Gawthorpe collection. One, made for a farmer and hop planter in the early 19th century, has smocking at the sleeves and the neckline to draw the fabric in to help it fit. Marks and signs of wear show that it was clearly used a lot. A later smock, dating to the turn of the 20th century, shows fewer signs of use, and it has beautifully elaborate smocking all down the front of the bodice and across the exaggerated collar and pocket tops too. Listed as a forester's smock, it's a lot more decorative than its hop-planting antecedent, so it could be an example of Sunday best, or worn as a fashionably bohemian garment, encapsulating a romantic, rural ideal. I wanted to investigate further, so I enlisted someone who could help. My name is Alison Topless. I'm currently an honorary research fellow at the University of Wolverhampton, where I research working class clothing and acquisition methods, things such as um, shopping, secondhand trade, mainly in the 19th century. And I've just completed a book, The Hidden History of the Smock Frock, which was published by Bloomsbury in May. <laughs> I asked Alison about the history of the smock frock. Well, the earliest evidence we have for the item worn by men, which becomes known as a smock, is during the sort of mid 17th century. There are examples of men wearing sort of linen or canvas smock, which was a sort of loose overall and there's evidence both in illustrations by people such as Randall Holm in his Academy of Armoury in 1688, and also sort of in archival evidence, court reports, wills, that sort of thing. These often were worn by carters, so they're like sort of truck drivers today, dealing with muddy roads, moving stuff around, animals of various types, and as well as sort of men putting them on as protection to move items around warehouses. So there's sort of one um, detailed, I think, in a, um, in, in a will where Samuel Jeek, uh, a merchant from Rye in Sussex, um, bought a linen frock for five shillings, six and a quarter pence <laughs> in 1676, ready made from a shop already in this period. So these are the kind of earliest examples. Fantastic. I love that. That's great. I know the term was historically contested, but how do you define a smock or a smock frock? Well, the definition of a smock or smock frock is very difficult to define and to sort of untangle from this sort of various terminology. And a smock seems to have originally come from a Saxon word smock, which is the same but without a K, uh, which translates as a sort of garment 
meaning to sort of to creep into, which I quite like. <laughs> and there's a sort of similar Norse word as well. But smock is actually originally a sort of female undergarment until sort of late 17th, early 18th century, which was worn next to the skin. So it kept sort of outer clothing in better condition and needing less washing. And the female garment, um, the undergarment, actually became the chemise and later the shift. So, and men wore the frock, as we've seen. So sometime in the first half of the 18th century, the smock and the frock come together and are linked as a sort of male overall. Now, I've, I've got a sort of theory about this, that this might have happened on the sort of London stage, as we have a sort of note of a sort of long frock, which was used in um, a ballad opera of 1729. Um, these are sort of comic operas. So I, I think it's kind of linked maybe because it's played for comedy that you're linking a sort of female undergarment <laughs> to a male garment. And in this context, they're talking about a sort of naive rural labourer who's not quite sure what's going on and you know, not in with London fashion and London life. And I think this could have been played for laughs. So for me, the terminology is, is difficult and I don't think we'll ever really know how the two became associated. But the smock frock, as we think of it now, as perhaps being um, a sort of longer garment, I don't think is necessarily technically correct um, through the ages anyway, for me. <laughs> Sorry, it's a convoluted answer. <laughs> That's great. That's so interesting. I, I love this idea that it might have sort of evolved as a joke. A joke yeah. on the stage. <laughs> so interesting. It seems to be kind of the only, well, not the only way, but one of the main ways, I think, which it could have been linked, you know, because you you're still having sort of smock races for women at this time, where they're sort of, um, it's a kind of uh, sort of thing which happens at country fates and fairs and things where the women are racing to win a smock. So it's still in sort of current parlance and in dictionaries and things. It's still a female undergarment at the same time as it's becoming a smock frock. So it's, um, it's difficult. <laughs> I love that about the smock races. So they're not they're not running in smocks. They're running in the pride to, to win a smock. That's yes, what the, the prize is the, <laughs> I love the that. smock. <laughs> That's brilliant. I love that. That's great. That's fantastic. When, why and how do you think that smocks became a marker of rural identity? Well, as I've mentioned, smocks were connected to sort of rural people outside the mainstream, perhaps those who didn't really understand modern or urban life from the mid 18th century onwards. But there also begins to be a sort of categorisation of smocks as something rural by various commentators from the early 19th century. So they start to appear as the dress of agricultural labourers in books of costume. One example is William Alexander's picturesque representations of the dress and manners of the English from 1814. So there's a smock illustrated there, which is worn a bit like a shirt on a farmer's boy. And, you know, these costume bits could be uh, used by middle classes and the elite to sort of distinguish and categorise working people. They're given sort of ciphers and um, generic attributes so they can be identified. Uh, so that starts to include the smock as rural dress. But I think if you look at the written evidence at the same time, it's not actually that clear cut because they are being sold all over the place and to, you know, could be worn by anybody. And I don't think it's until the sort of late 19th century that they become a sort of specific marker of rural identity for everybody. So I think that sort of reflects the profound changes in rural society for everybody at that time. So sort of rural depopulation, male suffrage, um, literacy for everybody with compulsory education. So I think when there's a sort of threat to this sort of rural life, 
they become um, sort of taken up as a sort of symbol of it. They're also at that stage seen as kind of um, unattractive for other sort of counts of them being seen as unattractive to women when they're worn by sort of younger men, sort of working age men. There's mechanisation in farming, so it makes them dangerous to wear. So they then become sort of much rarer worn and then they're just worn by sort of young boys and elderly men as well. And also, I think, you know, the clothing industry itself with, with its mechanisation from the 1860s with the sewing machine. So cheap suits become um, available for working men to buy and they're more fashionable, they're more modern. Um, so they move out of wearing smock frocks. So it's just the sort of the elderly men who've worn them all their lives who are left wearing them. And then these elderly men are photographed by the people who are anxious that rural life is disappearing and um, they become sort of very nostalgic and you know, marker of rural identity that way. And this is also the same period that they begin to be denoted donated to um, local museums. So, so at, at this point, I think they become very uh, specifically um, connected to sort of rural nostalgia. But earlier in the century, I don't think it's that clear cut. So. Now, smocks became very fashionable in the late 19th century and the early 20th century. Could you talk us a bit through this process from farm to fashion? <laughs> um, it's rather a long and complicated process to move the smock from um, farm to fashion. But as you know, as I've mentioned, as men gradually stopped wearing smocks in the late um, 19th century, sort of elite women and, and children began to wear them. So firstly, in sort of from the 1880s for women, um, it's the actual technique of smocking or gauging, as it was also called which sort of enters the needlework canon as something women could do and dressmakers also use. Partly, I think, influenced by sort of dress reform movements. So smoking gives in a sort of illusion of freedom of movement and elasticity, although it's often very much an illusion. And it also plays into the arts and crafts movement. So you get um, you know, a bit of handwork feel of um, pieces, which sort of contrasts with the sort of increasingly despised machine made. But I think sort of the actual move into a garment is complicated um, and sort of mediated through sort of particular women, such as the actress Ellen Terry, who wore labourers' smocks at her country house in Kent after 1900, sort of its perfect working from home dress. <laughs> and her daughter, Edie Craig, was also a big fan. She was also an actress and they both worked in America. And through various artistic connections, the smock was taken to the United States. And this is where it actually first developed as female fashion, initially for sort of artistic types in Long Island and Greenwich Village. So um, Georgia O'Keeffe is photographed wearing one, which she makes herself. And they reached the pages of American Vogue by 1915 um, and the front cover that summer. And from here, it's brought back to the UK. So it's a bit of a, <laughs> a roundabout route, but it gets here eventually. <laughs> That's brilliant. I love that. Is this the first time that the smock is seen as a fashionable item? Yeah, I think this is the first time the smock was seen as a fashionable item. Um, although the gauging and pleating which is used on smocks tends to turn up in women's fashion when there's sort of some kind of fabric manipulation required. So you see it on sort of 1820s and 1830s sleeves when they're huge and they need to be <laughs> manipulated back down also on bodices in the 1840s. Um, but as an actual female garment, it's um, first fashionable then during the First World War period, both in the US and the UK. 
So firstly, it's a sort of particular type of, and it's always a coloured garment rather than just the sort of the white, blue, green smocks that um, men wore. So it's a sort of coloured garment for gardening or as a house coat. It's advertised as liberties make them as a house coat. And of course, for war work, for particularly for, for sort of land girls, they sort of take them up in a big way. And it fits with a sort of tunic aesthetic, which is popular at that time as well. And from, from that point on, it sort of remains part of the fashion vocabulary, sort of drifting in and out of popularity picked up by designers when they want to sort of convey something in particular, often sort of freedom, bohemianism, um, childhood comforts, even cottagecore lately, so as they sort of seem to be back in fashion now. So. <laughs> Do you know anything about Forrester's smocks? I, I mean, a Forrester would look after a piece of forest, obviously. So I'm, I personally am quite sceptical of sort of linkage of sort of patterns and occupations. Yeah, many smocks were ready-made. Anyone could go into a shop and buy any pattern. Although, of course, you know, you, you do get still get smocks made for best and smocks made for weddings. So these are the ones which I think would be personalised. So if you were a shepherd, you might have crooks on your smock or you know, if you're a forester, you might have oak leaves or something. And these are both sort of patterns which appear generally. But, you know, anybody could go and buy any pattern they like. So I think these sort of pattern obsessions have more to do with sort of Victorians categorising everything rather than the actual everyday reality for sort of working class people. So a forester would wear a smock, I think, in the mid 19th century. You know, they're waterproof, they're weatherproof, they're cheap. Um, but I'm not sure by 1910 seems a bit of a, a late date, though there are obviously smock revival movements as well, copying old smocks at that date. So. <laughs> It's exactly the same with fishing gansies as well, isn't it? People always say, oh, you can tell the exact village that fishermen's from, from the patterns. But again, it was just all the sort of characterisation in the late 19th and early 20th century that, that sort of brings that idea. Um, so do you think this smock was likely a, a fashion piece rather than a working piece? I'm not sure about fashion. I mean, as I as I said, there's a lot of, particularly in Dorset, there's uh, a lady, Mrs. Beer, Sarah Lucy Beer, I think her name is, who's sort of vicar, wife of the vicar of Beer Regis, who sets up this association, Arts and Crafts Association, and they make smocks taken from old patterns. So it could be something like that. And she employs a lot of local women who then make a decent wage. This is all sort of pre from sort of I think it's like 1905 that period up until the first world war when the society kind of collapses but she employs local women to make copies of old smocks so it could be something like that and they're paid good money apparently more than their sort of grandmothers were and they're able to buy things like false teeth and things which they haven't been able to afford before but the society gets quite a good reputation and gains sort of a lot of elite patronage, including the royal family. So they're, they're, and they ended up in quite a lot of museum collections as well. So uh, could be something like that. <laughs> While we should be wary of reading place or profession too closely in the stitches of smocks, the association with rural life is here to stay. It's the agricultural elements of clothing which are so often forgotten in Europe today, with the globalised fast fashion system that so many of us live within. But my next guest knows all about growing garments from the soil. Okay, my name is Justine Aldersey-Williams. Um, I 
I would usually give my stock answer at this point that I'm a textile artisan and teacher specialising in natural dyes. Um, but I actually founded Northwest England Fibershed just as COVID struck last March, a year last March now. And since then, I've kind of changed how I think of what I do. And I've realised I'm part of this, um, it's like a global uprising of creative activists. And it's predominantly crafty women, textile women, who are disrupting our current system, which is really reliant on fossil fuels, by just simply choosing to work slowly, by hand, with natural materials. Justine, as the founder of Northwest England Fibre Shed, is a collaborator on the Homegrown Homespun project. The aim of this innovative project in Lancashire is to create linen jeans that are grown, spun, woven, dyed and stitched in the UK beginning with planting flax for fabric and woad for dye. I asked her how far back linen production goes in the British Isles. The British Isles have a really rich heritage of linen production, dating back at least 5,000 years to the Bronze Age. And in areas like Iran, Syria, Turkey, you know, there's um, flax seeds have been found and dated back to 8,000 BC. Um, Egyptian mummies were wrapped in linen cloth um, and... I especially love the European folklore associated with flax. Um, it's heavily connected to women, to spinning. So the goddess Arianrod is the goddess of the spinning wheel, very much connected with um, flax in this country. The Gaelic name for flax translates as fairy woman's flax. So I, I love all that kind of folklore and mythology around it. And throughout Europe, um, special rituals would have been performed often including nudity um, to encourage the growth of the crop so you know women would um, be required to lift their skirts walk through the fields men were often encouraged to strip from below the waist and command the flax to grow as high as a certain part of their anatomy um, so yeah I think we should definitely preserve that tradition in this country as flax is reintroduced um, flax was grown all across the British Isles. It was, it's so intrinsic to our culture historically. Um, and by the 18th century, we produced around 50 million yards of linen cloth per year, which required hand processing about 9,000 tons of plant fibre. So it's, it's absolutely fascinating discovering this, this plant that was so entwined with our ancestors' um, lives, everyday lives. Everyone would have spun. I find that really, really interesting because I'm just learning to spin right now. Can you tell me about the Northwest England Fibre Shed? Yeah, we are a regional collective of textile professionals and we are aspiring because we have to work towards this point, but we'd like to work with um, local fibres, local dyes. So this is the strap line of um, the bigger fibre shed organisation, which was founded by a natural dyer, Rebecca Burgess, in California about 10 years ago. And it spread globally. So, so yeah, every single region is doing their own um, unique work, subject to their unique environment. But Rebecca was very conscious of you know, um, issues in the fast fashion industry involving environmental and social exploitation. So she tried to create her own wardrobe using resources from within an 150 mile radius of her home. And it really exposes the challenges of working sustainably. So, you know, the work that we're doing in, in our fibre shed, we have blocks 
in our manufacturing infrastructure, preventing us to work in the way we want. So it's actually very cheap to make something that will pollute the planet and exploit people. It's currently very expensive to make something um, that's good for people in the planet. And that's really what Fibershed is addressing. It's um, tackling climate breakdown through textiles and fashion. Can you tell me about the Homegrown Homespun project? Well, the Homegrown Homespun project is a collaboration between the Northwest England Fibre Shed, Patrick Grant's Community Clothing. Um, you might also know Patrick from um, the BBC's Great British Sewing Bee. And he's also the patron of the British Textile Biennial. So it's um, a collab between these three organisations. And we are aiming to create a regenerative, what's called a soil to soil textile system. So, you know, a lot of the discourse around sustainable fashion begins, it, it has begun with who made my clothes classically, which was a brilliant place to start. But I think Fibershed are drawing people's awareness to the fact that textiles should be grown. They should be, an, well, they are an agricultural product. They can be. It's just that at the moment, 70% of clothing is mined from fossil fuels. So it's extracted from materials that have taken millions of years to form. Um, whereas we have this option to grow our clothing, these plants rejuvenate and replenish every year or a couple of years, and they have a really positive impact on the environment at every stage of their life cycle. So what we're doing in Blackburn is we're reclaiming uh, disuse, disused land. Um, so we are currently well, we currently have a, a field right in the centre of Blackburn where we've planted woad and flax. And we are working with the community. We have a fantastic team of supporters who turn up religiously every Friday, 10 till 12, to help, to help us do every aspect. So they, they helped us clear the site. It had been used for rough sleeping. Um, it was a fly tipping um, popular hotspot we cleared untold amounts of rubbish from that site and it's transformed. We have these beautiful plants now growing. Um, and yeah, the, the community have literally planted the seeds. They come along and they weed. They'll be involved in the harvest, which is gonna happen um, probably around the second week of August. It's just so special to think that we have brought this plant home to its kind of native land where it used to be grown historically for so many years, such a, a huge part of our culture. Um, and it, it's brilliant. So we hope by this October's textile biennial to have created an indigo linen garment of some sort. Now we've said a pair of jeans because ideally by the 2023 biennial, we'll have tackled some big issues to enable us to upscale to a full line of um, hopefully jeans that Patrick can then sell through community clothing. Um, now, it's brilliant. The process, you know, there are many obstacles, there are many challenges. And whilst you could sort of get quite frustrated about that, every single obstacle is gold because it highlights how this system is completely topsy-turvy. It's wrong that we shouldn't be able to just grow our own clothes as our ancestors did for thousands of years before us we're completely prevented from doing that now we are denied these empowering skills and the ability to to grow what we need 
So it's massive. You know, the ramifications, the implications of this are, are potentially huge. But what we're doing right now is making a start. And it's been a fantastic process. Actually, we've we've done workshops. I went and um, hosted three workshops over the summer half term. And I worked with a spinner and weaver called um, Kathy Wright. So we did spinning on the Monday, natural dyeing on the Wednesday, weaving on the Friday. And in about 18 hours, we created a community banner, which would literally, you know, from the local area, locally reared blue face Leicester wool. I brought along an old bed sheet um, just to tear up and make into fabric yarn. We learned to spin outdoors in this beautiful oasis in the middle of Blackburn. It's it's quite magical, actually. And I think the community have all been shut up in their homes, um, not able to kind of gather with people. But we were outside. We were able to get creative. It was a beautiful sunny day. And we learned to spin, naturally dye and weave. Um, I took people foraging around the site. So we collected dye plants from right within Blackburn. We, we threw them into our heritage dye pot. So I did use Madder, which is a um, historical dye used in the Bayer tapestry and Weld. So we had a pot of yellow, a pot of red, and we added in Blackburn's own nettles, brambles, hawthorn leaves. Um, what else? I think some, some people had collected some food waste from their kitchen. So we threw in some pomegranate skins and some onion skins. So the colors in our banner are truly homegrown. You know, it's like, it's from that area. It's quite special that those colors reflect um, elements of Blackburn and the, the people who live there. So we, you know, part of this is addressing the skills gap as well as the gaps in manufacturing. And I'm really passionate that these pre-industrial textile crafts should be included in the curriculum, in school curriculums. Um, they build fantastic skills apart from anything else. But if we're to reshore our industry, which is the ultimate aim, we need people to be inspired to want to go into textile manufacturing. And I think it begins with, with hands-on um, textile crafts. How else can you teach children the value of natural materials and the difference between natural uh, or shall we say renewable materials and non-renewable it's just a great medium um, I call them gateway crafts they they kind of open up opportunities for people to just engage with the discussion about climate breakdown and what's causing it but in a really beautiful hopeful and inspiring way rather than doom and gloom statistics so yeah, it, there's a there's a lot to this project. Um, we've got many challenges ahead of us. Um, we're currently heading towards our harvest, doing lots of planning of how we're going to get some form of garment created in time for October, and tackling, you know, really interesting issues along the way. And I think whatever we produce, we will be telling the story really honestly, so that that in itself raises so much awareness of the situation our manufacturing system is in in this country right now. The ideal is that we are working towards a regenerative agricultural system of, of growing these plants or a carbon farm, using carbon farming principles. We, we've worked with the local wildlife trust. We've consulted them on ways that we can manage this site in Blackburn. So, you know, we're building compost heaps. Um, we're looking at ways we can 
bring wildlife back to the site. We already have a family of geese <laughs> that live there, but the pollinators love flax. Um, the woad isn't growing quite so well just yet. So again, there, there's a learning curve gone on with the way that that was planted. Um, the flax is just brilliant and is, is really bringing a lot of pollinators to the site. So we have um, collaborated with um, a regenerative agriculture um, organization called Regen Agri. We're also working with um, the University of Lancaster. We have a student hopefully joining us to do a master's by research and we've tested the soil. So we will be hopefully proving that what we've done has enriched the soil and improved the biodiversity of this site. And you know, if that gets scaled up, that's a massive potential for the entire fashion industry that could become a real force for good and make a massive positive benefit um, to our environment. What are the long-term aims of the Homegrown Homespun project? Well, the long-term aims of the Homegrown Homespun project are broadly speaking to regenerate local economy and ecology. We are very much in line with the whole localization movement um, that, you know, the principle of which is that if you create short supply chains, you develop relationships with people. You know, if you have to look someone in the eye, you're far less likely to, to exploit them. You know, if you have a long supply chain, it's very easy to, to forget that there's someone on the other side of the world who might not be, in, might not be getting paid a fair wage or there's pollution happening, out of sight is out of mind. So the fibre shed ethos is very much about localization. You know, their strap line is local fibre, local dye, local labour. And it's about keeping um, the wealth in local regions rather than it going to huge corporations, huge global corporations. Um, I mean, we see this being upscaled to other disused um, land in urban areas. So there's lots of waste ground, basically, that, that the council has that could be being utilised. Um, we hope to really engage the community and build skills that inspire people to help us bring textiles back to this country. Um, you know, it's it's exciting to me that the fashion industry, which has quite a bad reputation at the moment, the fast fashion industry, could become such a force for good. Um, it's about, you know, Fibershed, I, I, I think of Fibershed as having brought the fashion industry down to earth. And they're presenting this uh, very positive possibility that if you work within um, carbon farming principles, you could do great things with your creativity um, that could benefit, you know, people and planet. What benefits does linen have in the 21st century? Linen has so many benefits for us in the 21st century. Um, currently, 70% of all clothing produced annually is derived from fossil fuels, carry, carrying a massive carbon footprint, causing huge pollution, emitting massive amounts of greenhouse gases at every stage of their life cycle. Um, now, if you think that in this is a few years ago, in 2008, the annual global textile production was estimated at 60 billion kilograms of fabric. I can't even conceive of these figures, but it requires a mind-boggling 1,074 billion kilowatts of electricity or 132 million metric tons of coal 
and between six to nine trillion litres of water to produce that amount of fabric, which is predominantly fossil fuel. Um, so if we consider the carbon footprint or what's called embodied energy, so it's a new term to me, but it basically means all the energy required to make that fabric. If we look at that, um, those figures for various fabrics, linen is not only better than synthetics, as you'd expect, but it's better than wool and cotton as well. And I've, I have got some figures. So it's measured in megajoules per kilogram. Flax fiber is 10. Cotton is 55, so five times more. Wool is 63. And then you move into the synthetics. Polyester is 125. And the worst is nylon, 250. So flax is coming out as really good um, ecologically. You know, it doesn't require any inputs when grown with carbon farming principles. And this makes a huge difference. You know, most cotton is sprayed with herbicides, pesticides, um, perhaps even fertilizers. Cotton, you know, is very thirsty. It requires a lot of water. Now, we've put our flax seeds in the field in Blackburn and left them. And they've just grown. You know, they're com coming to about waist high now. Beautiful plants that have, have had no input. And a hectare of flax captures 3.7 tonnes of carbon dioxide. Um, so it's just such an exciting prospect for the British fashion industry. We're hoping to work towards a standard that Fibershed have created called climate beneficial, which is a trademark term. And this standard is fast becoming the benchmark for a more ethical fashion industry. And it does require that um, fibre and dyes are grown within these regenerative principles so that you can really prove that what you're doing is having a positive impact. Um, right now we're working towards that point. I think the whole of the Fibershed organisation internationally recognises you can't just click your fingers and have everything be perfect. You know there are lots of barriers in place to prevent working in, a, in an ethical and sustainable way but we're working towards them. So you know, what I find really interesting about the whole project is the engagement and the awareness that we're raising that you have very simple choices actually now. Once once the information is out there and that ha the information has been hidden from us, willfully hidden by massive advertising campaigns for many years, but you basically have a choice to, to buy clothing from that comes from plants, that has a positive impact, that will sequester carbon, that at the end of its life can be composted, it can go back and nourish the soil at that point as well. Or you buy your clothes from materials that come from fossil fuels that have taken millions and millions of years to form, that are completely unsustainable, that, that pollute at every stage of their life cycle. Um, I think it's, you know, when you get natural materials into people's hands and you teach them the skills, you know, you can, you can bring that conversation about the difference between renewable and non-renewable, but you're also, it's really enjoyable. And I like to think that, you know, I come, at, come to activism from a very affirmative point of view that natural materials will seduce people with their beauty, you know, and then that makes saving the planet irresistible. Then it's, it's an easy process. It doesn't have to be um, beaten over the head with doom and gloom all the time. I think the regeneration of the planet is a really exciting challenge and it's going to be amazing. 
Such a beautiful message from Justine about the regenerative potential of linen and going back to the agricultural origins of our clothing. And our smocks from the Gawthorpe collection, which were originally rural workwear, have taken us through to contemporary clothing that also has its roots in workwear, jeans that will be grown and created here in the UK. Next time on the Cloth Cultures podcast, we move from seeds to sheep as we turn our attention to wool. Wool was crucial for the medieval economy in England, but through its yarns we can also start to understand how textiles have been used as tools of empire and colonialism. You can find out more about the British Textile Biennials commissions and programme of events on Twitter, at Textile Biennial, and on Facebook and Instagram, at British Textile Biennial. See you next time. <laughs>